Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no home, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hey. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm Lindsay. Thanks again for all the recent ratings and reviews. They help us find new listeners uh, next to personal recommendations better than anything else. So appreciate that. Lindsay has a couple quick things to say, and then we're off and running with whoop. another fun show. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Okay, so just, uh, we said it last week, but in case you missed it, just a reminder that very soon we will be talking in detail about Summer Camp 2025. There is mm. no camp this year. Dan and I are taking a breather for a variety of reasons. Tickets are going to go on sale end of March again. Things are a little up in the air at the moment, and as soon as we have confirmed details, we'll share them here. Time suck, social media. Don't worry. You will know. Sweet. So, sweet. That's announcement one. And announcement two is the February charity. Uh, As many of you or all of you know, we love the city of New Orleans so very much. It's a place that has absolutely touched our souls and a place we hope to spend a lot of time in our future. One of our favorite places there is Preservation Hall. It's like this tiny little intimate musical experience. It's literally like nothing else in the entire world. And they have this awesome foundation uh, aimed to protect, preserve, and perpetuate New Orleans music and culture through music education. And so in supporting them, we support musicians, we support history and tradition, and all of that matters, I think, to all of us. And in honor of our friend Tyler C., who's no longer working at Bad Magic, who we took to Preservation Hall who just like cried through the whole thing, mm-hmm. we've decided that this month we will be donating to them. The donation will be for $12,930 to Preservation Hall and a $1,430 uh, contribution into the scholarship fund. So Sweet. good job, patrons. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this, that was a fun one. That uh, was. Yeah, we like to spread it around, music, animals, people. So mm-hmm. that was a fun, we haven't done a music one in a while. No, we haven't. Uh, and then uh, before uh, the preview here, quick reminder that if you'd like to submit your personal paranormal story on Scared Don't. to Death for consideration, have it read by Lindsay on a future episode, please email it to mystory at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. 
What if they email it to don't at <laughs> I don't want to read it.com? No. I'm kidding. We can always use more true horror. And how much fan submitted horror do you have for us today, Lindsay Lou? We have three stories this week. I'm excited. The first one is a very creepy Airbnb story, which I think at this point we can probably almost all relate to. Uh, then a, a camping story. I say that with a question mark. You'll see why. And then my third story will take us to the Penhurst Asylum. Oh, I feel like, oh, you know what? On Time Suck, I've, uh, I did an episode, I think, on, a long time ago. I forgot on Penhurst Asylum. Yeah, I, I Pen- thought you did one here. M- maybe actually here as well. There might have been a story set here as well. And totally. I, think, I think that I've had one, if not two, fan tales also submitted from there. So. Yeah, it's supposedly a very haunted place with a crazy uh, history. Yeah, n- not, so, not so great history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a murder mystery double feature today. Ooh, fun. Two stories that both have more true crime elements than paranormal elements, uh, but I found them both really interesting. Wanted to share them here. The first is a story of a woman harassed by a psychopath, both before and after her death, in a sense. Or was she not harassed by a psychopath, but by something else? My second story is another report of a young woman being murdered, strange circumstances regarding her possible killer, and allegations of a haunting that have followed her death. Okay. Not the typical stories I share here, but good for variety, I think. Um, yeah, we like to mix it up. Uh, I'll get started as soon as you're socked up and ready. Check out these babies. These are, let me try this one, Vincent Van Gogh, Starry Night, with a twist, we have <laughs> UFO sucking up cows. Nice. In the style of Vincent Van Gogh. So funny to me. <laughs> uh, no setup for today's first tale. Okay. Just going to jump right into a lesser known unsolved case from the 1980s. That is pretty difficult to stomach. Uh, Very unsettling. Time now for the tale of the murder mystery of Dorothy Jane Scott. For months now, he had been calling her. Dorothy Jane Scott, a 32-year-old mother from Stanton, California, didn't know who he was, but he seemed to know her. It started slowly at first, about four or five months prior to the fateful day. The calls would come both at work or at home, and they would be upsetting but vague. At first, the calls came in spaced far enough apart that Dorothy brushed them off as a prank. But then the mysterious man started to call more often, and when he did, what he said got more specific. He began telling her about her daily routine, where she went, what she did, who she spoke to, what she was currently wearing. He knew what kind of car she drove, a white 1973 Toyota station wagon. He knew the name of her son and where he went to preschool. He knew, of course, where she worked. That's where, at the beginning, he called her the most. Dorothy worked as a secretary for two conjoined stores. One was a head shop, meaning the uh, sold cannabis paraphernalia like bongs and pipes, but no actual cannabis. The other sold new age psychedelic items. Like I lo- like her. Love beads, lava lamps, and I'm guessing quite a few crystals. Yeah. Not the place you might expect a devout Christian who did not drink or use drugs to work. Those that worked with Dorothy described her as quiet and boundlessly kind, a homebody dedicated to her son and her faith who was living with her aunt. As the man began to call her more frequently, in addition to relaying to her all the intimate details he knew about her life, he also started to profess his love for her, and much more upsetting, his desire to kill her. He would declare his undying devotion to Dorothy, tell her how profoundly he adored her, but then in the next breath, he'd tell her that soon enough, he would slaughter her. He told Dorothy he would, quote, cut her to bits 
and bury her mutilated remains somewhere no one would ever find them. One evening, after Dorothy had put her four-year-old son Sean to bed, he called her house and told her to go check outside. He'd left her a gift, a token of his love. Terrified, Dorothy did go out to investigate, and sitting atop her white Toyota was a single, dead rose. The harassment had been going on for almost four months at this point, and Dorothy decided to do something about it. She contemplated purchasing a handgun, but given her anti-war and anti-violence views, as well as having a young child in the house, she ultimately decided against it. Instead, she decided to take up self-defense lessons. But sadly, a mere week after her very first class, whatever she'd begun to learn in her initial lessons would prove futile. At around 8 p.m., May 28, 1980, Dorothy was attending an employee meeting at work while her parents were babysitting little Sean. During the meeting, she noticed that coworker and friend Conrad Boston looked gravely ill and that his arm seemed to be swelling profusely. Dorothy was alarmed, insisted they go get him medical attention. Accompanied by another coworker named Pam Head, she'll drive Conrad to the UC Irvine Medical Center emergency room in her station wagon, arriving there around 9 p.m. Before leaving work for the hospital, Dorothy exchanged the black scarf she was wearing for a red one, and then, on the way to the ER, the three quickly stopped by her parents' house so she could tell them what was happening in the days before text messages and cell phones, and that she would be coming home much later than she originally thought. That was the last time Dorothy's parents would ever see her alive. For the two hours that Conrad was in the ER, Dorothy and Pam never left his side. After an examination, it was determined that Conrad had been bitten by a black widow spider. He was given a treatment of antivenom and told he required further medication to aid his recovery. While Pam and Conrad waited for his prescription to be filled at the emergency room's pharmacy, Dorothy volunteered to go get her car and drive it around to the hospital exit so he wouldn't have to walk too far. Her friends obliged and thanked her, and Dorothy went on her way. And that was the last time Pam and Conrad would ever see her alive. Once Conrad's prescription was filled, the two headed for the exit and waited for Dorothy. And then they waited some more. They waited, and they waited, but Dorothy never came. Finally, they decided to go over to the parking lot, where they had left the car, and see what was holding her up. As they began walking in that direction, they were relieved to see Dorothy's car, suddenly take an aggressive sharp right turn out of the lot and drive towards them. But then, she, or whoever was driving, began to accelerate. They quickly realized their friend was not going to stop to pick them up and had to jump back onto the curb to avoid getting run over by the now furiously speeding car. They were befuddled by Dorothy's actions, or who they assumed to be Dorothy's actions. When it drove past, Pam and Conrad said they couldn't see inside the car because of its bright headlights, and that because of them turning to move out of its way uh, when it drove past. They never saw a driver sitting in the driver's seat. Maybe they couldn't see who was driving the car because no one was. No real person, at least. Confused, they decided there must have been an urgent emergency with Dorothy's son that she needed to go attend to, and that they would have to find their own way home. But a few hours later, after neither Pam nor Conrad had heard from her, and she had not returned to her parents' house, they reported Dorothy missing. At 4.30 a.m. that same night, five hours after Dorothy's car was last seen speeding out of the hospital parking lot, police located her white 1973 Toyota station wagon in an alley 10 miles from the hospital. There was not much left of it. The car had been set on fire. It was clear that the vehicle had gotten, had, uh, hadn't gotten into an accident, but that someone had strategically parked it there, covered it in gasoline, set it ablaze, and left. Dorothy and her kidnapper were nowhere to be found. Cue a manhunt, a lot of police interviews, and zero leads. 
On June 12, 1980, almost two weeks after Dorothy's disappearance, the managing editor of the Orange County Register, Pat Riley, received a call in the newsroom. The caller matter-of-factly informed Pat that he had killed Dorothy. The following is an excerpt from the newspaper's article on their conversation that ran the very next day. A man called the register early Thursday morning and claimed he killed Dorothy Jane Scott, a 32-year-old Stanton mother who disappeared May 28 from a parking lot at UCI Medical Center in Orange. Miss Scott's whereabouts have been unknown since then. The caller described articles of clothing Miss Scott was known to have been wearing, and state police said there was little doubt the call was genuine. The man said he killed Miss Scott because he, quote, caught her cheating with another man. The caller said he would only talk for two minutes, apparently to prevent the call from being traced, although the register does not have the equipment to trace phone calls. The caller indicated that on the night of the abduction, Miss Scott had called him to say she was at the medical center and told Riley that Miss Scott said Conrad had a spider bite. State police determined only a handful of people could have known the details provided by the caller, as Thursday's story provided no details of the clothing worn by Miss Scott, nor did it describe the nature of Conrad's infection. The story was exclusive to the register, precluding the possibility of the caller learning the details from any other media outlet. The caller said he met Miss Scott at the medical center and asked her about another man. He said she denied being involved with any other man, but he insisted she was. On one occasion, he said, quote, she was my love. On two occasions, he stated, quote, I killed her. Even before the killer called into the newspaper and claimed he and Dorothy were involved, her parents, Jacob and Vera Scott, as well as her friends and co-workers, had all repeatedly stated that she was not dating anyone at the time of her disappearance, so they did not think it could have been a jealous boyfriend that took her. For a little while after her disappearance, Dorothy's family held on to hope that she would soon be found alive. But after months and months of no breaks in the case, no leads, no valuable suspects, no indication of where she was taken or even why, or who the caller was, their hopes dwindled. On July 8, 1980, almost six weeks later, they printed an ad in the Santa Ana Orange County Register. It read, Reward offered by parents of missing woman. The parents of Dorothy Jane Scott have given up. They feel their 32-year-old daughter is dead. They will pay $2,500 for information leading to her body, or if by some chance she is still alive, for information leading to her whereabouts. After this ad was published, someone would reach out to Vera and Jacob. Some man called the grieving parents who are now raising their four-year-old grandson, not to offer valuable information that would help them find closure, but to taunt and harass them. For five years after her death, every Wednesday afternoon, Dorothy's killer called her parents and told them in a soft voice the gruesome details oh. of how he murdered her and visceral details of how he had loved her. The killer said the same thing every time they answered. Is Dorothy home? He would ask. Despite the harassment, the Scots could not afford to change their phone number. Unable to retire now that they had to raise Sean, Vera and Jacob had to keep their engineering contracting business going for later into their lives than they had wanted to in order to provide for their grandson. And unfortunately, they ran their business out of their house and their home phone number was the same as their company phone number. So they endured the torment. With the help of police, the Scots had their telephone line tapped but the killer never stayed on the phone quite long enough for them to trace the call. Finally, over four years after her death, on August 6, 1994, Dorothy's remains were found, 10 yards away from the Santa Anta Canyon Road by a construction foreman named Jesse Loza. There he discovered a decaying skull, pelvis, and the bones of one arm 
and two thighs partially buried by dirt. With her remains, police found a watch that was stopped at 12.30 a.m. May 29th, an hour and a half after Conrad and Pam had seen her car speed out of the hospital parking lot. On August 16, 1984, the Orange County Register published another update on the sad, brutal tale. A portion of it reads, When informed by the coroner's office Wednesday that the remains of the young woman found off Santa Ana Canyon Road were her daughter, Vera Scott said she felt relief that the uncertainty was over and profound sadness that her daughter was dead. The crime scene contained literally no evidence regarding who the potential killer was. Slowly over time, the caller would stop harassing Jacob and Vera. Maybe he got tired of doing the same old thing. Maybe he got bored of them now that they had closure. Or maybe, just maybe, he had found a new victim to occupy his time with. We will never know because Dorothy Jane Scott's murder was never solved. The identity of the anonymous caller never uncovered. All that we know is that eventually, after years, Vera and Jacob Scott stopped hearing the words, Is Dorothy home? Some think that the mysterious caller had connections to some sort of secretive occult group in the area, that Dorothy was targeted in part because of her faith, that her murder was part of a ritualized killing, one of several in the area, and that the killer felt confident to continue to call her family because he believed that dark forces would protect him from being apprehended. Since he was never caught, maybe he was protected. A few others seem to think, what if whoever called them wasn't a he at all, but an it, something that never had to worry about being caught? and felt comfortable with continually tormenting Dorothy, Vera, and Jacob Scott because it wasn't something that ever could be caught. Yeah. That is so weird. Right? What a terrible story for those parents. Oh, my God. I mean, her, obviously. Obviously. Her son, but I'm like, my God. And just Years no, of constant calls. And no resolution. I nope. mean, I'm grateful that they found her remains so that they could have a, a mm-hmm. burial. I have definitely read... You know, a lot of articles about, you know, unsolved mysteries or, you know, uh, missing persons. And, you know, at a certain point, you know that Mm -hmm. you're probably never going to see that person again. But not being able to have that sort of finality. Yeah. It can be really, I don't know, it's just we're like trained to our brain. That's how our brains work. Like you live, you die, we bury you. And so when you can't have that ceremony, that Mm -hmm. like, but that, I don't know, that punctuation at the end of the sentence. Yeah. It's just, ugh. Ugh, so I'm yep. grateful they got that, but then the fucking phone calls and never finding this murderer. And how many other people did he do this to? Who knows? No, we know nothing about whoever this person was. And how was there no DNA at the crime scene? That feels well. Cool. That I will say, just from doing so many true crime, um, part of that, you know, at the very least, would be because of the time that it elapsed. Oh, and, and then uh, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't until 1986 that DNA started to be used in court. Wow. So it was just before that. So they could do like- So I was just three. <laughs> they could do like, um, I was 20. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> that is so creepy. That. They could do blood type stuff. But that only, you know, depending on your blood type, it's like, okay, yeah, Bob could have done it, but also a hundred million people yeah, in yeah. this country also could have done it. So they're all O negative or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Man. I have some pictures here. Uh, and then we can still talk about this more if you want. Uh, this first one, a portion of an article in the July 6th, 1980 edition of The Register, where Dorothy's parents advertise a reward for info about the whereabouts of their daughter's remains. My God. Uh, next one, image of Dorothy that ran in all the newspapers after her disappearance. Oh, she's so pretty. Mm, this was taken from the July 8th, 1980 edition of The Register. Uh, this next one's another picture of Dorothy in her 20s. It comes from the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Oh, man. 
this next one, Dorothy's father, Jacob, left. Her mom, Vera, holding Jacob's hand and her eight-year-old son, Sean, at the memorial service. They are a poor kid. Can't imagine. Can't imagine. And then one more, Dorothy and her son, Sean. This image was found on TalkMurderWithMe.com. Man. Now, I know that you didn't probably do like a ton of deep digging here, but where is mm. Sean's dad? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I don't no, know. Because I was like trying to figure out who could the murderer oh, be. And I'm like. I would think even if he tried to match, because they didn't talk about voice modulation or anything. Oh, yeah. And even if he tried to change his voice with that many phone calls. Right. I would imagine they would know his, but, but he could have been somebody who was out of the picture immediately. Right. Um, it's just a very, very, very weird thing. How, what got me about this story was how did he constantly know where she was without her ever placing like, oh my God, that's the car that's following me. It's like for months, he's calling her constantly at work. He knows where her son is. He knows so much about her. And then at the end, he knew not only that she was at the hospital, but why she went to the hospital for such a specific, I mean, you couldn't come up with a more random thing. A black widow spider bite. I know. Like if you guessed 200 times why somebody went to the ER, that probably wouldn't show up in those 200 for a lot of people. No, I immediately jumped to- Oh, Black, black Widow Spider Bite. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to joke No, uh, I immediately jumped to, it must be someone that she works with. But she was getting the phone calls at work mostly. Yeah, but doesn't mean it couldn't be someone she worked with. Like he's sneaking off into the- Yeah, take a but, lunch but then break. Would, but again, wouldn't she recognize- the but, voice? But maybe he was working in conjunction with someone else, like someone else who's making the phone calls. Like maybe it wasn't a singular person. Oh, yeah, that's true. You know, that's so it's like somebody creepier. who has, you know, a lot of access to her. I actually was just reading an article this morning about like how much time we spend like uh, with our parents, with our kids, with our coworkers, mm-hmm. with our partners. And it's like you one of the places that you spend the most amount of time is at work. Yeah. Oh yeah, know? totally. And so like just, you know, she wasn't working for a big company. She's working mm-hmm. in this head shop, which I thought was hilarious given yeah. her, uh, no more, drinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh-huh. But actually it makes sense. Cause then you're not worried about her like stealing yeah. or, you know, like using drugs and, you know, being like too high she, to perform at work or whatever. She's you not know? there to be part of the scene. Yeah. It's just like, Oh, that's my job. I know. Yeah. I kind of like it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it did just make me think like, well, that person would have access to so much constant information. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, how's Sean doing? Oh, yeah, good. He's in a play at school. Like, just, you know, whatever. Like, totally. the basic things. I just think about, like, you know, Logan told me a story yesterday about one of his kids. It's just yeah. like, it's it's not like you're divulging, like, their deep, dark, like, medical history or anything. You know, yeah. it's just these, these little things. That- That's a disturbing thing that it could have been a pair. Mm-hmm. Where one person who is like a friend with her, like somebody who's around her all the time, and then that person is feeding some other creep constantly that oh information. So that so it's like so you would never recognize the voice. They would seem detached from you, but they would know so much about you. Yeah, because I just felt like the spider bite thing was so specific. Uh-huh. And she discovered How? that he had the spider bite when they were at a work meeting. Yeah, this this so, person. So yeah. that's why I I was like, it has to be someone she works or, with, or it's just a friend of somebody. Like, yeah, what, yeah. What if it was like, okay, that that uh, the lady she went to the hospital with. Yeah. Um. What if it was like? I mean, I don't know anything about that lady, but what if it was her husband or or somebody or a friend of the guy who got bit? Okay. What, what if one of those people had a crazy obsession with her that they didn't disclose yeah. to their friend? And that way, like their friend is just sharing details of like, oh my God, I can't believe she didn't show up. We took Conrad to the hospital and he's like, oh, no way. And then that person is the creep. But, but, mm-hmm. but she, she notices that Conrad has this swollen arm 
Yeah. While they're at a work meeting. Yeah. Okay. And then she goes to her parents' house to say like, hey, I'm taking a friend to a hospital. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember. I think Conrad and the friend were in the vehicle when she stopped by her parents' house. Uh-huh. So no one has time to stop. Like like that friend, maybe would maybe she like ran into her parents' house to like call her partner to say like, hey, I'm, t- I'm going to the hospital. Oh, no. But the person didn't call into the paper for a few days. So the people that went to like Conrad and the other person, they could have went to the hospital. Dorothy goes missing. But I'm saying like, how would someone know where she was? She was abducted from the hospital. And the only right. people can, that knew I, that I she was that. at the hospital were people that she was working with. No, I can answer that. Okay. She goes, she, those friends, they're with her at the hospital. Then she goes missing. Those friends go on with their lives for the next few days. They're going to be talking about this. No, I know that, but I'm One saying- One of the people they talk to then calls the paper a few days later. Oh, I understand that. But what I'm saying is- I'm, who knew she was abducted from the hospital? Who knew she was at the hospital? Anybody those friends talked to did. did. But what I'm saying is, okay, they go meeting, hospital. That happens in like the span of an hour. Right. None, none, none of, uh, sorry, none of that timeline matters. Yes, because, it does because, that's some, because the person who killed her abducted her from the hospital. So who knows that she went to the hospital? It's a very brief. Anyone those friends talked to over the next few days after she went missing knows. Any of them. I'm saying- A, a hundred I'm, people could know all those details. I'm saying who showed up at the hospital to- st- Oh, I was so hung up on the paper. I'm like, what are you talking I know, about? I wasn't talking about the paper. I never even said anything about oh, the newspaper. You just it. jumped to that conclusion yourself. I yeah, never I said anything about oh, the newspaper. Oh, 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 I kept oh. saying, how How did anybody know she was at the hospital? I, Only the people she works with knew she was at the hospital. So who came and got her? Had got to be it. someone she worked with because, because I don't think it was her parents. Right. So that's why I was saying like, so, so you go work- Three people yeah. at, at this meeting amongst many other. And right. then you go right to the hospital. And the only stop between work and hospital is her parents' house. So unless Conrad mm. or this friend, you know, I guess at her could have popped into her parents' house to use the phone to say, hey, I'm going to hospital with these people. Yeah. Or when they get to the hospital, maybe that female friend called like her partner or Oh, her wait a minute, friend. wait a minute. They stopped by her parents. But like when they left the work meeting. Yeah. They told everybody they were taking her to the hospital. I know that's not, but those are the only people that would have known she was going to the hospital right, the to abduct her. I mean, obviously somebody gotcha. could have been following yeah. her yeah. anyways, mm-hmm. but it just really yeah. makes me feel like between like the private details and yeah. then like, I feel like it had to be someone that she worked with yeah, working I, I, I in conjunction the, with someone else. I wonder who the police investigated. Yeah. 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 Sorry about that confusion. Yeah. No, no I get okay. it now. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? I know. I, and I was on the other end. I thought you were like, how could the person who wrote in, because you never said, you never led with abduct. How would they know to abduct I her? I, I did. Oh, I, I missed it. Yeah. I, I didn't use the word abduct. I said like, how did they, they took her from the hospital. How could they've taken uh, her? Like, how would they've known yeah. she was there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, It is yeah. funny. Like, uh, you can just see like in a brief interaction between uh-huh. two people who know each other really well and have like good shorthand and all of that. Yeah. Just like that tiny bit of confusion. Yeah. When you think about a police case and all the people that get involved, yeah. you can see how details get lost and not conveyed properly. Oh, yeah. Or like, all these infallible creatures. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Even the age of the digital stuff, it's still people putting in the info. Yeah. Well, uh, not for long. <laughs> we'll see if the robots do a better job. Uh, you good to move on? Very much. Yeah, that's good. Uh, time to move on uh, now from such a tragic and creepy story of injustice and move on to a North Carolina haunting and possibly also, that I'll possibly also features quite a bit of injustice regarding another young woman's murder. Before we move on to more scares, we need to take a quick in-between story sponsor break. Please take advantage of these sponsored deals. Use our codes and landing pages so you save money and we keep getting sponsored. Thank you. What is the most basic gift you have ever given the moms in your life for Mother's Day? Flowers? 
a candle, some random knickknack you picked up at the last minute because you completely spaced Mother's Day? I have definitely made the mistake of procrastinating gifts for Mother's Day. And then, like the Friday before, I run to whatever store is open and convince myself that, yes, yes, my mom does need another coffee mug that declares she's the world's (laughs) best. So lame. This year, how about one-upping yourself by giving the moms in your life an Aura picture frame? Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to any mom at any age. Aura frames connect easily to Wi-Fi and have unlimited storage so you can share as many pictures as you want. This year, as many of you know, I am on a spending freeze, but one of my carve-outs was meaningful gifts for the people I love. I don't want to give all of the moms in our lives something that won't bring them joy. We are giving Aura frames to the moms in our world because they are timeless, heartwarming gifts. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code SCARED at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Scared to Death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Scared to Death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking, and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scaredtodeath50 and use code scaredtodeath50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, creeps and peepers. Here we go. Time now for the tale of the murder mystery of Nell Cropsey. Ella Maud Cropsey, nicknamed Nell, was born in July of 1882. 
Nell was one of nine children of William Hardy Cropsey, a merchant, and Mary Louise Cropsey, a homemaker. In the late 19th century, the family moved from Brooklyn, New York, to Elizabeth City, North Carolina. They lived on a 65-acre plantation, and William worked as a justice for uh, Pasquatank, Pasquatank County. Mm-hmm. By 1901, Nell was 19 years old, which at the time was seen as a suitable age for marriage. Many, if not most, women were already married by the time they turned 19. Good God. Nell was known for her beauty, and it's believed she could have had many different potential suitors. But for almost three years, she had been exclusively courting a 21-year-old man named Jim Wilcox, the son of the sheriff. Nell was becoming impatient for a proposal. Wilcox worked in a lumber mill and was studying law at night. He didn't feel in any rush to get married and start a family. In the year before her death, Nell reportedly flirted with other men in public to make Jim jealous, hoping it would prompt a proposal. It may have very well prompted a very different, much less loving sort of reaction. According to some sources, she began allegedly having an affair with a married man named John Bartlett Fearing II, who came from the second, uh, who came from a prominent local family. By the fall of 1901, Jim and Nell were reportedly fighting constantly. In early November, Jim got into a heated argument with Nell and stormed out of her parents' house. The family thought the relationship was over forever. But then Jim surprised them by coming to the house on the night of November 20th, 1901, to pay a visit to Nell. And so they visited. The Cropsies were entertaining some family who'd come over, and Nell's sister Olive was seeing her suitor, Roy Crawford, in the home that evening. The many people present in the house heard Jim and Nell having some sort of argument, but they couldn't make out the exact words. Olive noted that it seemed like the two made up by the end of the evening. At 11 p.m., Jim stood up to leave and asked Nell to follow him to the front porch. Olive watched them walk outside, and it would be the last time she saw her sister alive. Olive would later say that she heard something bang against the back of the house right after Jim left. She went outside to take a look and found that the screen door was broken, but there was nothing around to indicate what or who had broken it. Olive and Roy Crawford were the only ones still awake in the house at this point. After a half hour, Olive assumed her sister had gone to bed and that no one had noticed her come back inside. Crawford left for the night. Olive went to bed. At midnight, she and the rest of the family were woken up by the sound of their dogs barking loudly. The sound of pigs squealing and a neighbor shouting, Someone's after your pigs! Henry Cropsey, William's brother, who was in town for a visit, ran outside with a gun, thinking someone was trying to steal the family's livestock. He immediately noticed that the front door was wide open. Olive screamed at her uncle not to shoot because she worried Nell and Jim were still outside. She asked, if her, she asked her father if Nell was downstairs and she wasn't. They checked her room and found it empty. This was the moment they realized Nell was missing. Upon further inspection of the open front door, they saw Jim Wilcox's parasol, given to him by Nell, lying at the door. It had not been there earlier, or at least not noticed. Mary, Nell's mother, was of course worried. William suggested that perhaps the young couple had run away to elope. William went to the Wilcox home to inquire about Jim and found the young man there. But, so suspiciously, Jim refused to speak with him. William was of course very upset by this, and he went straight to the police. Jim Wilcox was soon taken to the Cropsey home for an interrogation. There, he still refused to talk, even when Mary, tears streaming down her face, begged him to tell her where her daughter was. Finally, right before he left, Jim did speak. All he would say was that he had not gone to the Cropsey house for two weeks because of a quarrel with Nell. He claimed he only went there on November 20th to return her parasol and a photo of her. She said that when he brought her out to the porch, he returned the items and told her, uh, or he said, that when he brought her out onto the porch, he returned the items and told her the relationship was over. 
He left Nell crying on the porch after telling her she should go inside. Jim suggested that Nell choose to end. Uh, Jim suggested that Nell chose to end her life, but no one believed that story. Nell's family was furious and accused Jim of being a murderer. William Cropsey told the press, according to the New York Daily News, "My girl was carried off the porch, and Jim Wilcox knows all about it." The police were quick to rule out suicide. Nell was said to have been in high spirits over an upcoming trip to New York. They were reluctant to believe Nell left of her own free will because none of her belongings were missing. She'd also been having some trouble with her right foot, so the police surmised that she did not run away and was likely carried off the front porch. Search parties were sent out and bloodhounds patrolled the nearby swamps, but found nothing. Rumors began to float around that Nell was afraid of Jim's short temper. Nell's friends and family recalled their recent arguments. Mary Cropsey was of the opinion that Nell did not truly love Jim and that she was planning to end the relationship, not him. On December 27, 1901, over five weeks after her murder, Nell's body was found, just 40 feet from her home, in the Pasquatank River. It was sadly Nell's mother, Mrs. Cropsey, who first saw something floating in the river. She sent boaters out to investigate, and they realized it was Mary's daughter's dead body. The river had already been searched, making this discovery particularly suspicious. The police speculated that the body had been put there recently. Further adding to their suspicion was the fact that the family received an unusual letter postmarked from Utica, New York, December 24th. The letter provided a detailed account of the supposed events of the night of Nell's disappearance. The semi-weekly messenger, a paper for Williamton, North Carolina, will publish the contents a few years later in early 1903. The letter said, Jim Wilcox left Miss Cropsey on the front steps crying as they had engaged in a quarrel and Jim returned her photograph and parasol and said something which wounded her feelings. She remained on the steps some time crying, as she did not want to return to the parlor, and let her sisters and cousins know she had been crying. After she had been out some time and was starting into the house, the dog began to bark, and she walked out into the front yard to see what the dog was barking at. The dog led her, led her to a poplar tree or high shrubbery, and there she found a man whom she recognized. He was disguised, and she threatened to inform her father of his presence there at that hour of night. This angered him, and he struck her with a stick, which he held in his hand. He did not intend to kill her and thought that he only stunned her, but thinking his punishment would only be the more severe when she recovered, he carried her to the river and put her in a boat. He rowed near a mill not far away and placed her in a deep hole. When the search began for her, she was removed to a swamp, and then after the big reward was offered, she was put in the river just where she would be found. The man you want is... The name of the man was omitted from the article. The semi-weekly messenger noted that there was a man in town with a similar name to the omitted one in the letter. He left the Cropsey home 20 minutes after Wilcox, but before Nell was found missing. Could this letter be referring to Olive Cropsey's suitor, Roy Crawford? Was he having an affair with Nell? The letter even included a map with a marking very close to where her body was found. However, no one to this day knows who sent the letter and if the story written in it is true. Jumping back months to the months following Nell's murder, Jim was arrested and locked up in a local jail. A lynch mob, ready to kill him, surrounded the building and demanded his release. The sheriff, his father, and his officers refused to release him. Nell's parents also pleaded with the angry mob to let justice take place in court. Eventually, the governor of North Carolina had to send in a small naval reserve group to disperse the crowd. At the arraignment, the local prosecutors noted that Jim could not give a strong alibi for the hours immediately following Nell's disappearance. He was also known for his short temper and Nell's autopsy found she died from a single massive blow to the left temple. Prosecutors asserted that Jim killed her in a fit of rage. Jim went to trial in March of 1902 and was found guilty of first-degree murder. 
His hanging was set for April 25th. However, just before the date of his execution, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that he should be granted a retrial, which took place in January of 1903. On January 21st, Wilcox was found guilty again, but of second-degree murder this time, which spared him from the death penalty. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. As time passed, there was a lot of speculation that perhaps Jim was wrongfully convicted. One alternative theory was that Nell's father shot her because he mistook her for the pig thief, and the family covered up the crime afterwards. A petition seeking pardon for Wilcox got hundreds of signatures. Jim Wilcox was pardoned by Governor Thomas Walter Bickett in December of 1918 after serving half of his sentence. Over 10 years later, in 1934, Jim met with famed Elizabeth City newspaper editor W.O. Saunders to talk about writing a book on the case. It is said that Jim revealed all he knew about the murder during the meeting. And then just weeks after the interview, December 4th, 1934, Jim Wilcox surprised everyone when he took his own life. (gasps) He shot himself in the head with a shotgun. He was buried without a funeral or even a grave marker. Saunders had come to believe when he spoke with Jim that he was innocent and planned to publish his story, but that never happened because not long after Jim's death, Saunders died in a car accident. He drowned when his car fell into a canal. Finally, less than a decade ago, on September 8, 2015, William Dustin Dunstan, a writer from Chapel Hill, arranged a very late funeral service for Jim Wilcox. Dunstan claimed that his grandfather had evidence that may have acquitted Wilcox. Dunstan's grandfather told his relatives that Nell's father purchased an unusually large amount of ice immediately after his daughter disappeared. He suspected it was used to preserve her body before it was put in the river and that he was afraid to speak out at the time about what had actually happened because of the lynch mob. Dunstan noted that William Cropsey is now buried alone in a family plot at the old Hollywood Cemetery, while the rest of his family all are buried at Highland Park Cemetery. Why? Was this a deliberate choice by the family? Did they hate him for some secret, some terrible thing they knew he did? The Cropsey family home still stands at 1901 Riverside Drive in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. The home is private property, but is occasionally open to the public during the city's annual ghost walk. Those who have lived in the home over the decades have reported paranormal activity believed to be the spirit of Nell Cropsey, still wandering about in this world, perhaps due to the confusion over being dead. Did you even see the fatal blow coming? Or perhaps due to anger over her feeling that justice was never served regarding her death, despite Jim Wilcox spending years in prison. According to multiple reports, lights turn on and off by themselves in the old Cropsey home, doors open and shut, cold bursts of air are felt throughout the house. And relating more to the belief that Nell's ghost still haunts her old home, some have reported seeing the pale figure of a young woman walking through the halls. Others have seen a ghostly, girlish image looking out from one of the upstairs windows. And a few former residents have even claimed that Nell's ghost has appeared in their bedrooms at night. One former resident claimed to recognize Nell, when she awoke and saw the murdered girl standing at the foot of her bed, staring at her in the middle of the night. Was Nell trying to tell her something? Perhaps who killed her? Many mysteries remain in this case, but maybe the most intriguing is that whatever Jim Wilcox told to newspaper editor W.O. Saunders never became public knowledge. Were Jim and Nell both victims of her real killer? Will the facts around Nell Cropsey's murder ever truly be known? And will her ghost ever find peace? Strange. Mm-hmm. It's another old-timey murder that led to a haunting. Yeah, well, I imagine there's a lot of old goats floating around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so weird. The thing that, like, I found especially peculiar was the the author and then what's-his-face, 
dies Jim, by suicide. Jim Wilcox. Yeah. Yeah. Dies by suicide. And then that journalist dies in a car wreck. It's like, that's weird. Yeah. Jim dies. W.O. Saunders dies right after that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels like either like a cover up or there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely could just be coincidence. Yeah. But yeah. Totally. Could be. Yeah. Could have been Jim the whole time. Weird. But yeah. Very strange. And then the the one guy being buried away from his family. Uh-huh. The father who there was a little suspicion around, like, um, you know, like years later, like, did he accidentally kill her and try and blame it on Jim? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have some pictures. Okay. I have an old portrait of Nell Cropsey, date unknown. Oh, Nell. That's actually a really pretty oh, photo from Nelly. that from back in that uh, time. Nelly. Oh, Nelly. Usually look a little weird, but that's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. <laughs> uh, this next one, old photo of Jim Wilcox. Again, date unknown. Looks like a Wild West gunslinger. Uh-huh. I think it's just the photograph, but his eyes look funky. Like when I oh, open uh-huh. my eyes But I think it's just the a, a distortion photo. from the Yeah. From the way the photograph is taken. Uh, this is an old photo of Nell's father, William Cropsey. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's, so kind of an odd looking dude. Looks a lot like Baphomet. Yeah. No, he's really interesting looking. Uh, obviously kidding. Here's a photo of William. Did you think you were going to get me? William is creepy looking. I mean, yeah. based on pictures, I suspect William. I, I think that he should probably have seen a dermatologist for that skin condition. Yeah. Yeah. He's, something's going on with his mouth too. Yeah, he should really get to the dentist. <laughs> That's a, a AI image of the devil uh, from freepick.com. Uh, I don't have any pictures of William, oh. but I do have a photo of the Cropsey home taken in recent years. Found at uh, gypsyjournalrv.com. Oh. Cute house. So cute. I love the um, the wraparound porch, the veranda. Yeah, me too. I do love a big porch. And those beautiful trees surrounding it. Yeah, that's a really pretty like North Carolina house. North uh-huh. Carolina has a lot of beautiful homes. I have never been there. Yeah, like the Raleigh-Durham area, I feel like in particular, like around the the campuses of like what, like Duke, University of North Carolina. Um, just so many houses like that. So many pretty houses. Remember when you went to the Duke campus with your dad? And did he yeah. pee in the bushes there? <laughs> no, he didn't pee. He just like, it was this heavily manicured area. I can't remember now. No, he wouldn't have peed because that was like the middle of the day. It was very, I mean, I know. It, I don't, because it was kind of like a- Hashtag dad watch. God, maybe did he? I thought he did. He might have. Or, or, or at the very least, I just remember you talking about, yes, a heavily and like yeah, well no, yeah. manicured. And then he like, just like walked through it and yeah. like set his back back down. Like he was like, oh, my rucksack. And then just like threw it down and like. Yeah, it was something like heavily manicured. Like um, um, when they have like landscaped little area that it was like, you definitely should not. And I think there was signs <laughs> like don't walk, you know, here or stay out, stay off the whatever. <sighs> And just completely ignored all of it and just like trampled a bunch of plants and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Just to like sort through. Uh, totally oblivious. Yeah. Sort through a backpack or something. That's what it was. Yeah. And then I remember like he bought you a hat. That's cute. It was really cute. Yeah. My dad likes a, a, a trucker hat. Yep. No, a baseball it wasn't hat. A, a baseball hat. It was a digi yeah. camo hat with Duke on it, which I was uh-huh. like, digi camo. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. That was like, sweet. He always forgets though too that like. You have uh, a giant head? Uh-huh, that it doesn't fit me. So I try to tell him, and he's like, I, I, you know, he gets it to me. So it's a nice gesture. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, cool. This doesn't, yeah, this doesn't fit on my head. We still have it, though. <laughs> Don't worry, Dad, if you're listening. We still have it. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it to you if you yeah. want it. I have to cough. <coughs> Coughing, cough. I have my two little traditional laylists today. Oh, two brown laylists? Mm-hmm. Do they smell anymore? Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, this one does, but the one on my left hand does. I like how excited you got. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I do not enjoy the smell, but I recall that you do. Mm-hmm. Okay, ready to have some 
actual spoopy stories and not whoa sus- whoa and not suspicious like suspected spoops. Yeah, let's do it. Like I have like confirmed spoops. I think Good for you this this first story, I would lose my mind if this happened. I would okay. And also based on how our house is set up, if this happened to us, I would this I could see this. I can envision this just like looking out the window and like oh my god, what is that? LFG, dude. Okay. <laughs> wow. How old are you? <laughs> Twenty. Oh, okay, cool. Cool. Good for you. Hello, Lord and Lady of all things spooky. My name is Rebecca. You could say that I'm new to the game of listening to scary podcasts since I was a non-believer for most of my life. However, the experience I'm about to share with you opened Pandora's box, and now I just want to find answers. The year was 2020, and dare I say, that's the scariest tale of an in itself. (laughs) I had just started dating my now fiancé, Mike, and things were going great. The only downside was that we both lived with our very large families, so we couldn't get any privacy at either of our houses. The lockdown didn't help much, as you can imagine. We decided to rent an isolated Airbnb where we didn't even have to see the next-door neighbors. After a few days of searching, we found exactly what we had envisioned. The place was even better in person. It was a one-story wood cabin with surreal views of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The interior was the coziest with its huge fireplace, comfy sofa, and the best part, a California king bed that didn't stay neatly made for long. The first encounter, if you can even call it that, happened that first night. We had just sat down with hot cocos to watch a movie when something caught my eye in the nearest window pane. At first, I thought it was the reflection of the light, but when I leaned forward, squinting my eyes, getting closer to the window, the shape of a hand was pressing against the glass, a child's sized hand. The realization startled me and I jumped off the sofa, spilling my hot drink on myself and subsequently freaking Mike out. I sprinted towards the door. Nothing but the darkness welcomed me as I opened the door. I inspected the window from the outside. No trace of the handprint. I stared at Mike, who was then, who had then by joined me, and I said, did you see that? But he just shook his head and blamed me for making him spill his drink. Thankfully, everything we did after that took my mind off it all. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> the following night, we were once again sitting in the living room, unwinding. Despite Mike's continuous mocking, I had propped my phone up on the side table with the camera set to video in an attempt to capture... I don't know what. I had it fixed on the same spot on the window where the hand had peered the night before. It must have been around 10 p.m. when I felt Mike slowly place his hand on my arm, followed by a soft squeeze. I looked his way, and his eyes motioned towards the window. And there it was again. The small hand, pressing on the glass, the arm coming upwards from the lower corner. This time, I didn't waste a second, and I launched straight towards the window. But in the blink of an eye, the hand disappeared. My heart was racing, and Mike couldn't have been more wide-eyed. I told you I saw something yesterday, I said, and he could tell by my voice that this time I didn't want to be proven right. I sat back down and grabbed my phone. First, I deleted the hour-long recording of absolutely nothing and hurried to plug my phone in before it died. Then I Google mapped to verify what I had remembered, that the closest neighbor was about 10 miles away. Then I combed through every review that I could find of this place, but there was no evidence of suspicious activity of any sort. The third night came, and we decided to stay in the bedroom and watch a movie in bed. 
There was a large window, but it was covered by dark curtains. We kept busy, and beyond that, it was uneventful. Fast forward to our fourth and final night we would spend there. We were, once again, sitting on the couch, only this time we were both intentionally avoiding looking at any of the windows. The movie was just about over when Mike got up to refill his drink. He took a few steps towards the kitchen when the noise from his slippers came to a halt. Fuck was the only word that was muttered. I tried to stay focused on the paused screen when he whispered, don't look. Ain't that the cheapest reverse psychology bullshit? As soon as the words came out of his mouth, I felt like my head was twisting on its own. There were now three sets of small hands pressed against the window, and they were moving rapidly, tapping the glass, but somehow not making a single noise. He began slowly walking towards the door, my eyes switching back and forth between him and the window, him and the window. Once his hand made it to the knob, I met his eyes one last time and confirmed that the hands were still there. He slammed the door open and stepped outside. I thought, the hands are still there. He's going to see them. He's going to give them an earful, those little (laughs) shitheads that have been scaring us since we got here. And I laughed to myself. And just like that, the hands were gone. And the next thing I saw was Mike staring back at me, touching the window, confused. I wish I could tell you that the next morning when I called the person who managed the bookings for this place, that she offered me some kind of excuse, some version of, oh yeah, that was so-and-so's kids. Sorry about them. But she didn't. She acted like I was talking nonsense and that maybe we got freaked out because, you know, we weren't in the city. So I hung up on her before she had the opportunity to call me crazy. We still have no clue as to what we experienced. Was it cabin fever? I shake my head with a heavy sigh at the thought of making such a ridiculous excuse. What I do know for sure is that prior to writing this, I googled the property so I could attach the address to the story, and the Airbnb listing has been removed, and I can no longer find the booking email anywhere in any of my inboxes. Becky. Weird. Like it fucking just disappeared. (laughs) Thanks, Becky, for that story. Man, the three little hands. Oh, God. (laughs) I know I've mentioned this before, but like, okay. Adult hand in the window. Yeah, that's really scary. Like when you're like, you know, what does it say? Like 10 miles or 10 miles from any other like house. Yeah, that's scary because it's like, oh, you could hurt me. Right, right, right. That's that's scary in the way of like the stories I told, like true crime type. Yes. Oh, my God. But in the world. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Yeah. But in the world of like, okay, but then if you, you see a hand and then you go out and you can tell that there was like, there's no one there. Yeah. It was just something, some weird apparition type thing. That's also really scary. Scarier to have three little sets of hands. I don't know why. Like, why? What? Are, why are three little kids ghosts out oh there with God. their hands on the wheels? Like, what even is that? And tapping the window, but not making a sound. How does it not make a sound? Mm-hmm. That's creepy as hell. So creepy. And then that final detail of like wanting to share a location with us and like can't find the Airbnb. Listing on Airbnb. Okay, fine. People take listings down. Yeah. But you would still have a confirmation email with the address. Right. And that's gone too. Because people can't pull their confirmation emails back out of your inbox. No. I mean, you can unsend an email in like a few minutes, but that's like yeah. a new you update. To, yeah, you have recently. to do it real quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like unsend a text. Un- but it has to, yeah, like you said, it has to be fast. Yeah. And also like just happened in the last few months. Cause I have yeah. tried to unsend emails before it, let me tell you. <laughs> Not good. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking creepy. That was that was a good creepy, very uh, some very cinematic moments in that story. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about our house, like where we sit and watch TV. Mm-hmm. There's some windows there. Yep. 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 
Ugh. Oh, God. I'm going to have to close the blinds tonight. Because <laughs> we don't always close the blinds. Uh-uh. Problematic. Currently, we have some broken blinds because well, our dogs, dogs suck. Dogs, they, yep, they cracks me up. It's like, no matter how many times we talk to them about it, it's like, I don't want to like talk to break. them about it. <laughs> I don't want to break their spirits. <laughs> no, no matter how many times we've disciplined them. No, man, no matter how many discipline. times they've been grounded. Yep, they've been lectured. Uh, but they just will not stop going berserk every time someone comes to the front door, mm-hmm. which is often because we get most of our stuff from like, uh, order it in rather than go out and buy it. Right. So there's always somebody dropping a box off and the dogs go bananas every time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we like leave the blinds open and like we've got smart and we were like, okay, let's lift the blinds enough so that like they're just attacking the window. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what happened. When we were in Hawaii, but we came home and the blinds were just like burp, ripped. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to electrify the bottom of the windows. Ooh, yeah, put in a little like mm-hmm. shock strip. But then, but then it'd be so sad. Electric fence. <laughs> then they would just be like two depressed, oh, little nervous wrecks in the middle of the house. Now nah, they can they can bark, whatever, whatever. Or we're dogs. not there. Yeah, we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not our problem. <sighs> okay, you ready? Uh, what did I say this one was about? Did I tell you? Uh Oh yeah, okay, yeah, like a kind of camping story. Oh, that's right, kind yeah, of camping. Kind of camping. You'll see. Hello, king and queen of the suckverse. <laughs> Hello. I'm a longtime creeper and love to listen to you guys chit-chat and scare each other. Thank I you. have a story that after 30 years I still cannot explain. To this day, the fine hairs on the back of my neck stand at attention when I recount what happened to me when I was just 15 years old. A little bit of background, just to set the scene. This story takes place at Virgi- uh, in Virginia at Clater Lake. My family belonged to a private campground there and had for a few years. Every weekend, we would go to the lake, stay at our camper, along with my aunts and uncles, and spend time together, hang out, swim, fish, you know, lake stuff. The campground was basically set on top of a mountain with a large expanse of boat docks down at the bottom. And when I say mountain you have to think of the Appalachian Mountains. So more of a big hill or Appalachian. <laughs> we were a conservation club. So everyone in the campground campground utilized bathhouses for showers and pit stops. The closest bathhouse to the boat docks was beside the large picnic shelter. There were not any campers or tents near this bathhouse and the closest campers were probably a good quarter of a mile away from there. This bathhouse was rarely used by anyone unless the picnic shelter was in use. The lights weren't the best. It was a crapshoot, forgive the pun, whether you would have soap or toilet paper in the stalls, and you may or may not find a spider on the wall or a snake curled into the corner of the shower. My family had a big pontoon boat that we would head out on at about 7.30 or so, cruise around the lake, and not come back until well after midnight because my family loves night fishing. Me, not so much. But at 15, I did enjoy the cool air and being rocked to sleep by the water while my family chatted and enjoyed their time together. On this particular night, we had done just that. We packed up a cooler with drinks and set out on the lake to find a quiet spot to enjoy the sunset and catch a fish or two. I'm not sure at what point I dozed off, but when I woke up, it was just as we were docking the boat. I had drunk my fair share of sodas and the sound of the water lapping against the pontoon made my bladder ache with the need to pee. My dad and my uncle had several things that needed to be gotten off the boat. My mom and my aunts were helping them. I jumped off the boat and started jogging towards land. I knew I had about two and a half minutes to walk up to the bathhouse, and I was just praying I could make it, mainly because I didn't want to have to pee along the muddy trail to the bathroom. There was a half moon hanging in the sky, and the air was humid, but there was a chill starting to set in closer to the water. 
I started walking up the hill surrounded by the darkness. The trees were thick and overhung the path. The moon couldn't peek through, making it pitch black on the trail. I finally got to the top of the trail. The bathhouse was to the right, the picnic shelter was straight ahead, and there was a parking lot to the left with only my family's vehicles there. There were three uh, there were three dusk-till-dawn lights illuminating the parking lot and nothing really illuminating the bathhouse except for a single bulb on the front side of the building between the doors for the restrooms. I headed towards the bathhouse, dreading it already. I hated this bathhouse. It always felt dirty and gross. There was a single bulb in the room for two stalls and a shower. You flipped the switch, then you went in, and the smaller cinder block room felt dank and depressing. I checked both stalls, seeing only one had toilet paper. I thanked God out loud for small favors, relieved that there wasn't a snake to greet me as well. The little stall had more shadows in the dimness of the room, so I wanted to be as quick as possible. Although my parents would have said I always had an overactive imagination, I felt as if someone was there with me, and not just in my imagination. The ache of my bladder is decreasing as a stream of relief leaves my body. I'm sitting on the toilet, staring at the swinging doors before me, paint chipping and flaking. Tracy, I hear my name, and my heart leaps into my throat. I suddenly can't breathe, and I've tensed up so much that I've actually stopped urinating. This isn't a voice I know. It's a man's voice. It sounds like a younger man. What's worse is it sounds like the voice is coming from over my right shoulder. With a shaky breath, I reply, yeah? I try to calm myself, saying it's just someone playing a trick on me. One of my campground friends teasing me. I begin to drain my bladder again, reassuring myself, as I do, that it might just be my imagination. Surely it's my friends or my brain fucking with me. The voice echoes around me this time, filling me with a terror that I haven't felt since that night. I can see you, the voice says. I was scared to death, terrified because here I was being spied on during one of the most vulnerable situations one can find themselves in. I jump up quickly, yanked up my shorts, and run for the door. I didn't even bother turning off the light. I see my family about 150 yards away, loading things into our vehicle. I keep looking over my shoulder, looking for the man who had spoken to me, looking for someone to come out behind me. My mom, she sees me running for my life. She tells my dad something's wrong. He and my uncle start running towards me. What's going on? They ask, and all I can say is, there is a man in the bathroom. I continue running to my mom as my dad and my uncle register what I've said and hightail it to the bathhouse, ready to draw blood and crack skulls. (laughs) I watch them search both bathrooms and around the building. I'm shaking like a leaf, telling my mom, my aunts, my sister, how I'm never peeing alone again. We stood alone in the parking lot, waiting for my dad and uncle to come back. When they did, they said they didn't see anyone or anything. Everything was dark and quiet. The lights in both the bathrooms were out and everything appeared to be as it should. Of course, I get the, you freaked yourself out, all that scary shit you read lecture from my (laughs) uncle and my dad, teasing me about having a toilet-dwelling boyfriend. I know what I heard. To this day, I can't explain it. They searched and saw nothing. My mom was watching the bathhouse and I was the only person she saw exit. I can't explain it and I would love to get your take on it. Tracy. Yeah. Weird that it knew her name. No. Tracy, I, I see, see you. you. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I think about the bathrooms huh. here at our studio yeah. where like the light is motion activated. Uh-huh. And if you spend too much time in the bathroom, the light, <laughs> yeah. the light will go off. out. So what if you're sitting there in the dark and yeah. you hear, Dan. I see you. I can see you. What the fuck? So creepy. And, and don't recognize the voice. And like she notes that, you know, 
It's uh, just her family's cars that she sees in the parking lot. Like there's just no signs of there even being anyone else around. Right. And if someone like in a setting like that, if there's no one else around, it's, uh, you know, out in this campground area, doesn't sound like there's, there's not going to be a lot of ambient noise. Right. It's probably going to be real, real quiet. And if it's real, real quiet, people can hear you run. If there's a grown man running away from the bathroom, they're not going to ninja it out of there. (laughs) Like, like even if they're barefoot. You're yeah, probably going to hear them. You're going to hear them. You're going to hear their like, just like the weight of their foot yep. hitting the, like the, she said there was mud. So that sm- like mm-hmm. wet, the mud. sticky sound or leaves. Their jeans rubbing together something. something. I mean, when it's really, really quiet, somebody running is actually pretty loud. That's true. You know? So it's like, yeah, that that's, that's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> super weird. Um, I like when um, uh, Tracy talked about her dad and uncle. That phrase, ready to draw blood and crack skulls. I loved it. I know. I don't oh, know Tracy, you're funny. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've heard that exact phrase, but it's it paints such a perfect picture mm-hmm. of protective dad, protective uncle being like, are you, what the fuck? And then just like- There's a man in the bathroom? Yep. They were getting ready to beat someone's ass yep. for scaring their daughter. Yep. And niece. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Just so odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, you know, okay, since her dad and her uncle cleared it and her mom was watching it, like no one sees anyone. Yeah. So, Tracy, you asked for our opinion. I'm going to say something paranormal. Just a, a, it, yep. I, I cannot. Why did it know your name? Uh, I cannot logically come up with something else. Mm-mm. Yeah, because again, like if the, those two grown men run over there within what? 30 seconds tops yeah, of this happening? Yeah, yards. It's not that far. Tracy didn't hear them run off. Her dad didn't hear them run off. Her uncle didn't hear them run off. It's a quiet area. There can't be that many places to hide. Right. Um, and this sounds like it, it probably took place a while ago, you know, when Tracy was a kid. Yeah, she says 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay, 30 years ago. So th- so there wasn't like um, the tiny speaker from Amazon. Right, right, right. Bluetooth, like, like tech was more limited. Oh, I have something to tell you about that. Okay. Somebody wrote in and said what you could do to, because we were talking, was that on the bonus episode? I don't remember. We were just talking about like how to scare Monroe. Mm-hmm. And they said that you can get speakers that are um, USB enabled. So as to say, you could record like a spooky track on a US on a thumb drive yeah. and connect it to the oh, to the speaker itself uh-huh. and just let it play. And obviously it's going to run out like the battery at some point, yeah. The charge on the speaker is going to run out but probably give you enough to scare the shit out of her and then and then when she's sleeping, go in her car, get it out, charge it, oh rinse gosh. and repeat. With that one since you wouldn't have control over playing and stopping it, you know like with like with the phone, you could yeah. like come into the room and be like, "Oh, I don't hear anything." On that one, you'd have to re- if I'd have to really commit to pretending I didn't hear it. Well, you could also do a thing too, where it's like you know, I, I mean, it is dangerous to do to her while she's driving. So like, oh yeah, I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna risk that. Yeah, but if we just like put it in her room somewhere mm-hmm. or like whatever, uh, you could build in like quiet, so you could have it go and then be and quiet, then, and then quiet and go, you know, peaks and valleys. I can picture Monroe being so stubborn; she just ignore it. Like that'd be pretty funny. Like we hear it out in the hallway. And she's in there just fine. She's like, whatever. And, and then doesn't, like, just doesn't idiots. address it. Yep, she, doesn't reference it. She does have a very good memory. So I I do just think <laughs> like we would have to wait. What I'm thinking at this point is we have to wait for her to go to college or buy her first house or have her first apartment. Like we have to wait <laughs> so long yeah. that she maybe almost sort of forgets about what we did to Kyler. Yeah. It's just too soon. And with her, I'm always worried about the retribution. Dude, those eyes. Mm-hmm. She... That like, like, that phrase, like, if looks could kill, Monroe will fucking 
obliterate you. Yeah. She will not eliminate you with her with her eyes. Yeah, I'm not worried about the look as much Liar. as I am about like what she might do to me in my sleep later to like that she would consider payback. Because it, it <laughs> there's a chance she would take it much further. There is a chance. Yeah. And I would probably support her taking it further. <laughs> I would probably be in cahoots with her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've gotten really good at like staying out of the line of fire, uh-huh. but still being a part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a good supporter. <laughs> All right. Do you have time for one more? Uh, I do actually. You do? You're not too busy? No, no, no. Okay, great. Great. Settle in. Uh, take us off to the Penhurst Asylum. Hello, Lindsay and Dan. My fiance and I are huge creepers. Nothing really scares us. So much so that we help out at a horror camp that our friends run annually. And during one of the horror events is when my boyfriend proposed to me. So yeah, huge creepers. (laughs) Uh, We love going to the Penhurst Asylum repeatedly because we love looking at the new haunts that have been added to the attraction, as well as enjoying watching other people be scared by the actors. This particular year that we went to the Penhurst, they had just opened up a new part of the grounds where you could learn the history of the asylum. After visiting all of the attractions, we made our way to the museum that was now open. The person giving tours that night was not an actor, but a nurse who used to work there. A nice older lady who had a very warm smile and demeanor. She seemed relatively normal, nothing unusual about her. Just a sweet little lady who loved to talk about the history of this place. (laughs) You were required to stay on the first floor as the stairway leading upstairs was closed off due to the poor and unsafe conditions of the building. Some of the rooms on this floor were semi-private rooms with two beds and kids' toys in them. At the end of the hallway was a huge room with a lot of beds side by side in what seemed to be a shared sleeping space. People were encouraged by the old lady tour guide to take photos of the room to see if they could pick up any orbs, which she said happened all the time. Of course, the first thing my fiance started doing was taking photos of every room and corner he could access. While he did that, I investigated more deeply the private bedrooms. In the huge shared sleeping space, tons of people were taking photos when everyone noticed that in one part of the room, the far left corner, it was pitch black, blacker than black. No matter what, you could not get a photo of the beds or the toys that had been untouched for years. My fiance convinced everyone on one side of the room to stop taking photos, thinking maybe everyone's flashes going off at the same time was causing some kind of trick of the light that made the corner so dark. He took one last photo of the corner, but still, it was pitch black. I was poking my flashlight around the private bedrooms when I felt someone softly pulling on the hairs on the top of my head. It felt playful almost. It was strange, but I wrote it off as static. As I grew closer to the doorway of another private room, someone shoved me from behind, causing me to fall down, practically landing on my face. I yelled out, what the hell? And from down the hallway, I heard my fiance yell back, what's wrong? And that's when I realized no one, absolutely no one was near me. Everyone else was in that giant shared space. I only started being pestered by things after turning on my flashlight. So I turned it off and went to find my fiance. I found him at the end of the hallway where he started to show me the pitch black photos. Unlike him, I started to panic. I noticed a very faint outline of an extremely tall black figure in the corner that almost blended in with the wall. It was time to head home as it was a 40 minute drive to our house. In order to leave, we had to walk through the portion of the building where the historical lesson had been happening. We wanted to say goodbye to the woman who had been our guide. She'd been great. We noticed something off about her, though. Something had changed. She was rigid in her seat, staring blankly at the wall, her cheery demeanor gone. 
People were trying to ask her questions, but she refused to answer them. She just stared at the brick wall in front of her. My fiance and I approached her and asked her very softly if she was okay. Did she need some water or something? Her head snapped to attention and she gave us a huge smile. She said she was fine and smiled again. But her smile this time looked nothing like the smile she was giving people when they first came in. It was huge, like like something was forcing her lips to stretch further than they were supposed to go. There were at least five other people in the room seeing this happen. One guy whispered, what the hell? Under his breath, in our direction. After a few moments of just smiling at us, the old woman made her way through the crowds of people who were taking photos. A few of us followed her, scared that something was wrong with her and that she needed help. We followed her to the corner where it was always pitch black in the photos. And she just stood there, head down, staring at the corner. My fiance and I almost laughed. We just assumed she was actually a hired actor for the attraction and was doing a great job. (laughs) While we were leaving, we ran into security who asked us if we liked the new museum. We told her it was great, especially how the nurse inside was doing such a good job of scaring everyone. The security guard froze. She told us they did not have actors running that part of the experience. She made her way quickly into the museum, speaking in a hushed tone into her walkie-talkie to get someone else to come help her. We stood there, unsure of what to think. Eventually, we made our way to our car. And the moment we got in our car and left the parking lot, my fiancé suddenly started to complain that his back was itching and burning. He lifted his shirt where we found three huge claw marks down his side. Panicking and not knowing what else to do, I pulled out some perfume I had that had sage in it and sprayed the crap out of him while he said a prayer. Luckily, nothing followed us home that night, and we still find it funny that the one thing that was not supposed to scare us there is what had us running back home. Love, Marlena. Thanks, Marlena. Yeah, it's fun. I like that name, too, Marlena. Uh, me, too. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, Marlena. Do you know that Oh, uh, hold on. It's uh, Jacob Dylan, uh, Wallflowers. One, two, three, Marlena. Marlena. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, there were so many things in there. The feeling shoved, like the first thing Marlena uh, talked about, that might be enough for me to be out. You know, it's like like if I'm going, yeah. I'm going because I want an experience. But like if I saw a little shadowy thing against the wall, that's super creepy. Super creepy, but also like you can justify it away. You know, you're like I don't know, is it? Isn't it? Or or even if I can justify it away, it's not touching me. Sure. That's like a line where it's like if I'm like pushed to the ground, I'm uh-huh. like, oh, this thing could hurt me. Mm, okay, like, so that's your line with the ghost. Like it has don't power. touch me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. I mean, I don't know until I've had an experience like that. That's fair. But I, but I think if I was like pushed to the ground, like, oh, this is dangerous. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah, it's not just going to like, you know, give me nightmares. I, I might get like a broken neck. I might, you know, something like that. And You might get paralyzed. <laughs> true, true. And then um, the, oh yeah, and the claw marks, like whatever happened to her fiance, it's like, yeah, if I just felt something like scratch me and then I looked and nothing's around me, and all of a sudden I have claw marks on my side, i probably out. Yeah. I mean, thank God they were already headed home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, like, he, when he saw the marks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, then when he, oh no, did you break, Layla? These Laylas, they they do when they get, um, this one's the one that doesn't smell, they get a little older, and they dry, and then they, their little arms move, or they squish, and their little, their little head is, uh, yeah, his, his little head's not doing so good. Oh no. You know what I forgot to do the whole time that you were yeah. telling your stories? <laughs> That was a perfect shot. You just got, you just got hit with Layla head. That was perfect, right we on the forehead. Layla and I went head to head. Layla and you went head to head. I forgot oh, to do yeah. this. The whole time you were telling oh, your story. Oh, yeah. You're supposed to hold your pinky out the entire episode. To test my pinky strength. <laughs> because, you know, now that I'm in finishing school. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know. And like, I forgot most of what I learned in finishing school. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully next week you can bring some lessons. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, but yeah, the, the 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 claw mark thing was weird to me because it didn't seem that he felt it happen. It seemed like to me, I oh, I, I read it as yeah, like it happened like probably know. some point in the yeah. asylum. And then, like, he's like, oh, man, that was itching, burning sensation. Because it wasn't like an instant, like, ow. It was yeah. just like, ooh, itchy, burning. Yeah, yeah. Itchy-wawa. Itchy-wawa. Um, yeah, that was creepy. The outline of the dude uh, in the dark, dark corner. And then the tour guide lady mm-hmm. just, like, staring at the wall. That was, again, like I re- re- said earlier in this episode, cinematic. But that was a very cinematic moment to me where I could just picture. Can you come up with a different adjective? Nope. I'm a, what if I only, everything I describe now going forward for like months. I'm like, that was so cinematic. That would be an annoying adjective. <laughs> like, is, is that the replacement for wild, cool, and interesting? Wild, just everything. God, that was so cinematic. Whoa, dude. That's something my Aunt Kathy would do all the time. And it was like a family thing that we would keep in mind. She would always use, she would think she would. Use a bigger word, but she uh-huh. use it in a completely wrong way. Oh, Dan, stop being so cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, instead of dramatic, I love that that character trait. <laughs> Pinky out. Um, is this cinematic? No, but oh. but that is but that is really creepy. Just like um, that was uh, yeah, good good story details there mm-hmm. of like the lady who is like the check-in lady, and then she smiled. She's friendly at first, yeah. But when you see her later, it's like no, that's not the same smile. Yeah, that's too big. That's, uh, that reminds me of the movie Smile, yeah. which I uh, I know I like more than you. And I'm, and there's I'm looking a second forward to the one sequel. coming out, right? Mm-hmm, there is. I don't remember I'll when. I'll see it with you. This... I'll probably just laugh the whole time, but. Well, then I don't want to watch it with you. If you're going to laugh, I'll, I'll you'll hold, ruin it. I'll hold my giggles in. Okay. I'll hold them in, and then when we leave, I'll let them all out. Okay. Because that, you know, in finishing school, something that. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you're the finishing school person now. Yeah. Yes. I'm listening. Sir. In this new finishing school. Well, first of all, something that we learn in finishing school uh-huh. is to not laugh at others. Oh, okay. So in this situation, what you could mm-hmm. do now is you could offer up a gentle apology. My condolences for how I upset you with my merriment. <laughs> I will take it into consideration. That was a very cinematic reply. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> uh yeah, what I was going to say was yeah. at finishing school, what we've learned is that, you know, when you are taking in a performance yeah. and it, it doesn't really register with you, it, you find that it's not enjoyable for you or mm-hmm. you don't really find the value in it. Yeah. You don't degrade it to the person who you are with who is very clearly enjoying this oh. simple thing. Huh. Simple. Okay. Yeah. So when you like when you when you go to the movies with some who knows who, just a random simpleton, mm-hmm. you don't laugh uh, at something because like you know it's silly because you're smarter than yes, them. Yes. And you have to let the simpleton enjoy their simple pleasures. Yes. And when we're speaking about something that is mm-hmm. silly, yes, frivolous, uh-huh. nonsensical. Yeah. I let out a little chuckle. You oh. know, I don't want them to feel self conscious. Uh. But in this instance, we are describing a horror film. Yeah. And. I don't want to ruin the scares for you. So I will hold my chuckles in. Oh. And then okay. release them when I exit the theater. <laughs> the theater. I like it. I As you were talking, I, I didn't do it because I don't think I could have pulled it off. I don't even know if it's possible. But it would have been so amazing. I just kept visualizing me throwing the little Layla body like really quick. Yeah. And it literally just going in your mouth. Like you're talking uh, into the little Layla mouth. La, 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 la. I try no. La, 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 la. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll, I'm uh, trying to really open my mouth. No, away. it could bounce in your eye. I feel like it could go very much awry. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good that you yeah. had a good assessment of the situation. Mm-hmm. 
Did yeah. you learn that at finishing school? I did. To I really did. think out your practical nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. That's good. Do you want to do some shout outs? Yeah, let's do or some shout outs. Or would you like me to go first? Oh, uh, you can go first. Okay, I will kick it off. Well, actually, I'd like to make a little uh, note about the Annabelle shout outs. As of this episode. Oh my God. Yeah, go ahead. What? And I learned in finishing school that when you're frustrated, you it's okay to like let out your emotions. Now, was it suggested to you during finishing school that you let out your frustrations? Ah! Yes. In the moment or should you hold on? My, I, I recall in the moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, no more you can say. Sorry. I, I learned something different. Okay. But that's yeah. okay. Huh? Yeah. No, no worries. There's something about Annabelle's. Yeah. So, okay. For the Annabelle shout outs, mm -hmm. uh, as of this episode, <sighs> we should be completely caught up from the very first Annabelle until anybody who signed up through January of 2024. Okay. So if you haven't heard your Annabelle shout out, because I was actually just emailing with someone about this, the system is not perfect. Mm -hmm. the give, we give it our best effort. So if you have been missed uh, as an Annabelle for your shout out, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com and we can uh, get you all sorted. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, okay, now on to those who have supported us. Uh, Andreas Mil Milnerik. Abigail, which that's so cute. <laughs> that I take is. on Abigail. Abigail, Savannah Jessup, Tony Two Tap. <laughs> Tony Two Tap. <laughs> that was good. Oh, God. Okay. Trista Rolf, Shelby Kutev, Micah Marita, uh, Kaisha Uland, Zachary Burcham, and Kelly Megert. Megert. Nice. Megert. Megert. I think it's probably Megert. McGirt sounds correct. Turts, <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank the following Annabelle's as well. Barbara, Dana Samples, Willow Frazier, XOXO Torrance, Toby, <laughs> Claire Babcock. I think it's pronounced Claire Babcock. Yeah, a lot of emphasis on the cock. Mm -hmm. Beatrice Whitelaw. I, th I think she has pet roosters, so that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Glistifer. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, Jorge and Yaden Ireland. Or no, probably Jaden. Jaden Ireland. Yeah, whose name is Yaden? You know what? It was because I just did Jorge. Ooh, I just did Jorge in, in I speak Spanish. And in, oh, yes. in the Spanish language, a J is ha. And it, I, I, I added that. To I'm sorry, J. Ha. ha. Uh -huh. And I added that to Hayden. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for. But then when I read Ireland, I'm like, ah, probably not. Yeah, he's probably Irish. Probably. And so mm -hmm. what, what does the Irish J sound like? Jiminy Crickets. I don't know. I, was, okay. I, I, I can't do an Irish accent. Uh, <laughs> Frosted Lucky Charms. That's the only thing I can do. And it's I, not nothing even close to an Irish accent. I know that you don't love I Love You Man the way that I do. Mm -hmm. it, that is a cinematic masterpiece <laughs> for those of you listening. Yeah. If you haven't seen it. I've great. also seen it probably Thank at you. least 50 times. At oh, least. Uh, oh, funny. Uh, Lindsay also loves it. My best friend and roommate that I lived with, for we lived together for many years, we would watch that. Maybe weekly. Hey, you, Natasha. Oh, I would God. definitely categorize that as a feel-good movie. Thank you. Sure. Classic. Do they have an Irish accent in it? Well, in that movie, Paul Rudd cannot do any accents. And he, I, I think the phrase is that he always just sounds like a drunk Irishman or like, and, it's, and so anytime there any, is like a, a ridiculous Irish accent, my mind immediately goes to <laughs> I Love You Man. Have you ever watched it? Really watched it? Nope. Okay, we're we have to watch it. it. Uh, okay. Can I do my spoopies? Yeah, do your spoops. Thanks, bro. 
Okay, to Amari from Babs. Happy birthday, my forever and always. I'm proud of you for not pushing a pregnant lady down the stairs. Oh, good job. Yeah, I think that's a, whatever that inside joke is, that is fantastic. (laughs) To Crystal in Louisville from Nicole in Chicagoland. Happy birthday. Love you and your little space newt so, so much. Can't wait to see you soon. To Ray from Ray, you are a badass for quitting your corporate nine to five and putting 110% into your own business. You've got this. A thousand adventures await you. To Alejandro Lilly from your dad, Juan, happy birthday to the most awesome daughter, a loving mother, and kind-hearted teacher. Oh, so sweet. Mm-hmm. He was so cute when he sent it in. He's like, I'm a proud dad of I my daughter. It. I was like, mm, I love this. Uh, to Jacqueline from your big nerd, Derek, you are a wonderful mom, wife, and best friend. You're doing an amazing job. I love you. And to Sarah from Bronwyn, happy birthday. Thank you for getting me into this amazing podcast. Yes. Good job, Sarah. Good job, Sarah. Uh, that is our show. Thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else, info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. <laughs> You're flinching over there. You thought I was going to throw something. Just a big stretch. Thanks to Logan for scoring today's show. Thanks to Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And thanks to book editor Drew Atana, polishing and preparing listener stories for book number five. Uh, thank you to Molly Box for finding the first story I told this week. And to Olivia Lee, finding the second. We're on YouTube if you want to watch us. And on Facebook and Instagram, at Scared to Death Podcast, where you can find pics that accompany episodes and more. We also have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, full of fellow horror lovers. Enjoy your nightmares, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Oh, man. (laughs) If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scared to death. Bad Magic Productions. <laughs> that was a perfect shot. You just got, you just got hit with Layla head. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.